Good morning. I love that. <laughs> Thank you to the leadership, especially to Cody, for welcoming me here. It's wonderful to talk to you about the Trinity in Scripture or the Trinity in the Bible. So uh, let's start and kind of lay the groundwork. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the phrase, the Trinity in the Bible, or the potentially more inflammatory phrase, the Trinity in the Bible. But in my experience, when I raise the question about whether there might be a significant relationship between the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, two answers are pretty likely. One answer is something like, uh, yeah, of course, and if that's where you're at, then I have nothing to teach you. Go forth reading Trinitarianly. Except there is a way of reading the Trinity into the Bible, or allowing our belief in God as triune to be flimsy at best. The old formula, one plus one plus one equals one, for many is both their exegetical method for Trinitarian readings, and also effectively the extent of what they know about the doctrine. But we can't be content just to simply count persons in the biblical text. Trinitarian theology must be more. The good doctors Sanders and Smith and I are here to talk about the Trinity because we believe it is, in one sense, one doctrine to rule them all. Believing that God is triune is of the utmost importance. Thus, or therefore, we have to hold ourselves to a higher bar of understanding when it comes to the Trinity. And that's just the first of my many pleas to you today. In what follows, I'll propose some strategies for how we might read the Trinity or see the Trinity more in Scripture. Returning to my initial question, another common answer to the question of whether there's a relationship between the doctrine of the Trinity and the Bible is absolutely not. And it can come typically for at least two reasons. First, someone might conclude that the authors of the New Testament had no understanding of God as triune, that the doctrine not only was clarified over time, but also that it doesn't fit with the theology of New Testament authors. Those people might point to a text like the Gospel of Mark, and they might claim that Jesus was adopted by God at his baptism. These interpreters are open to later New Testament texts like John, having a more fully formed understanding of Jesus' divinity, but they would insist that this is a trajectory of sorts that still falls short of something like triunity. But it really would be a little unfair for us to paint this as an error that is restricted to those who don't hold to Orthodox Christology. Some are more hesitant when it comes to understanding how and to what extent the New Testament teaches doctrine. I personally think that scripture can, and indeed should, be read in a way that asks the question, what does this passage teach me about the author's understanding of God? But this goes beyond what the author says explicitly and includes what the author implies or even assumes. Some of you, undoubtedly, are a little unsure about what I just said. Well, who is this woman, and why is she talking about assuming things in the Bible? But, dear brothers and sisters, 
I submit to you that a lot of our theology is actually based upon what we can assume or deduce or conclude based on our biblical authors. Our theology is based on what is assumed to be true by them, and what we do is to deduce various teachings through appeals to the broad patterns of scripture. One good example, I think, is the idea that God is uncreated. Unless I've forgotten a key text, you all know, remind me. This does not appear to be something that is stated plainly in scripture. There's no one verse that you can go to that says, God was never created. But we do believe that. It is, of course, the case that at various points, God is said to be before creation. He's the creator. But that's not really quite the same thing as saying that he's uncreated. So this idea is something that we, we conclude as we bring together many texts in scripture. It's, I think it's a very good deduction, but it is a deduction all the same. So the idea of deduction or drawing conclusions reflects the fact that our theology is like grammar. Or we might even say that our theology has a grammar. We follow rules and use grammar anytime we communicate, even when we think. I'm using grammar right now without uh, reflecting on it too much. Um, but most of the time, unless we're theologians, nerdy theologians even, sorry guys, uh, we do not consciously reflect on our theology. The best example of this, I think, is our prayers. Our prayers communicate our theology, and while we might consciously be trying to avoid heresy, I remember a season in my life where I was really worried that I might accidentally pray, dear Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. <laughs> our prayers don't just avoid theologies or avoid, avoid heresies. They construct them or they communicate them. In the same way, one of our standard confessions, the Nicene Creed, does not use the word trinity. And in fact, it doesn't say a lot that is explicitly about the unity of the divine persons. Instead, what the creed does is it makes claims about each person, and it tells us how each person relates to each other person. This is how the New Testament presents its theology also. And I personally think that's because the authors assume those unstated things to be true, at least to some degree. So in the rest of our time together, I'll show how the New Testament presses us towards various affirmations that are consistent with later developments in Trinitarian theology. And for those among you who might be hearing the language of biblical pressure from Cavan Rowe in your ears, well, a thousand pierce points for you. I give those to my students. As I illustrate this, I primarily will draw upon quotations from scripture. Quotations, I think, in addition to being just something I really enjoy, are an important window into an author's thought. Whom we cite reflects our traditions alongside our convictions. When New Testament authors quote from other literature, especially scripture, they have the opportunity to tug on existing interpretive threads. They can raise and answer questions known to their implied audiences. They can draw on their context but they can also offer a new lens that adds to their reader's understanding of the plain words of the text and transforms aspects of its context and meaning. 
at this point I should say that it's rather important to me, and I hope you too, that we see that the New Testament authors are good readers of scripture. They work within interpretive traditions at their time to communicate their theology. Let me say this in a different way. In the same way that I can communicate with you, a group of relative strangers, I can draw upon our shared traditions and convictions and to make arguments that I hope will be convincing to you. I'm making assumptions about you as an audience. The New Testament authors did the same thing. Based on what they felt they had in common with their audiences, they made arguments that they would find convincing. They would appeal to common ground while also pressing them towards a more nuanced understanding or perhaps more often a more faithful application or ethic in light of how they understood scripture. To reiterate this once more, the New Testament authors used scripture in a way that would convince their audience while still pressing them either to a better understanding or to a better way of practicing their faith. This is important for us because drawing upon the context and interpretations of the quotations that I will highlight, it really does enhance our understanding of their theology. But before we get too far, I have two more things to note. First, it's possible that I might move a little fast, so I've built in some summaries. So stick around, we'll catch up together. Second, I do want to clarify something about my language, which I am rather intentional about in this one aspect. Generally, I will talk about the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, or use other terminology that's proper only to one of the persons, like Jesus. And I will generally only use God when a specific person is not clearly in view, or when I want to refer to the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. But this choice reflects something a little bit beyond my own intentionality, or my own choices. While in the New Testament, God clearly, clearly refers to the Father sometimes, many of the interpretations of quotations in the New Testament depend upon a shared assumption among the authors that God, or even the Lord, could refer at some point to any single persons, person, sorry, or at another point to all three persons. And I'll come back to this. So let's turn to the text. As you may have picked up from Cody's introduction, I am very fond of the Epistle to the Hebrews, and I thought it might be a good place to start. So I'll begin with a summary of some quotations in Hebrews, and for those like Cody who are familiar with this, I'm really sorry. Scripture is almost always cited as speech in Hebrews, but not just anyone's speech. If you look at all the quotations in Hebrews, you see that it is only the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that are named speakers who speak in a present, even occasionally timeless way, at least until the close of the letter. Therefore, it seems that the author of Hebrews has set apart these three to be exceptional. Even though the author does at a couple of points cite speech from a particular point in the past, like the Exodus or when God established the covenant with Abraham, in Hebrews, it's only these three that continue to speak. So what is it that makes these three exceptional? The author never actually answers this directly, but he does affirm various things about these persons that they all share. He does this through his quotations of scripture that provide a backbone to his overall argument. He 
his claims that come through these quotations and what he says about the quotations and the surrounding argument support the traditional presentation of these three as God in early Christian literature. The author of Hebrews uses spoken quotations of scripture to teach us about the speakers, and he also uses the quotations to teach us about those they speak to. The first speaker in Hebrews is the father. Typically, he speaks to the son. This conversation between the father and the son displays what is unique about Jesus. We'll be working through Hebrews a little bit quickly, but you might, so you might want to have your Bibles um, open to Hebrews and kind of follow along with me. We'll start in Hebrews 1. Starting there, we learn that Jesus is the son of God. He is worshipped by angels. This is in 1.6, and we'll just kind of work through the series of quotations. He is enthroned and anointed. He had a role in the creation of the earth. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Later, in Hebrews 5 and 7, the author says that the Father declares him to be a lasting priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. Throughout Hebrews, the son, the second speaker in the cycles, only speaks to the father. In both of his quotations that he speaks, or at least in both passages where he speaks, he presents himself in submission to the father during the incarnation. In Hebrews 2, we could characterize him above all as faithful. And in Hebrews 10, as obedient. Focusing first on the speech in Hebrews 2, here, he also reveals his care for his human brothers and sisters. While in Hebrews 1, the author shows how Jesus is unlike any single human person, Jesus' speech in Hebrews 2, 12 to 13, reminds the readers of his remarkable connection with us. At the conclusion, the author reinforces this. Jesus helps Abraham's descendants. He shared in our humanity. He was made like his siblings in every way, so that he might help when they're tested. In Hebrews 10, 5-7, at his entrance into the world, he declares that his will is to do, or sorry, his desire is to do the will of his Father. And here he's speaking Psalm 40. In both of these speeches, his solidarity with and mission to humanity is firmly in view. And finally, the Holy Spirit's speech is exclusively directed to the community, to y'all and to us. The fact that the Spirit speaks to us while the Father and Son primarily speak to each other is a way that the Spirit is distinguished from the other persons. Further, his speech, much like the Father's and the Son's, it has a, a different purpose and a different tone within the argument of Hebrews. He encourages them through a stark warning, especially in Hebrews 3, but a little bit in Hebrews 4 as well. And then he offers them a promise in Hebrews 10. Again, the Father and the Son speak to each other. The Spirit speaks to us. This is the third uh, speaker in the pattern. Therefore, while readers can hear the conversation between Father and the Son, it's only after they hear that speech that the Spirit speaks directly to them, perhaps to make clear its implications, respond to what you have heard, if we hear his voice, 
it says in Hebrews 3. We, of course, cannot be sure why the author of Hebrews has ordered their speech in this way, but I do find it interesting that it fits with the idea of taxis or order among the divine persons, Father, Son, Spirit. So to summarize, in the first two sections of Hebrews, we hear the Father, the Son, and the Spirit speak in that order in cycles that repeat. The first cycle matches what many scholars take to be the first section of Hebrews, and the second cycle begins soon after the second major section begins. In other words, even though even biblical scholars might find it incredibly boring to think about the structures of biblical books, this helps us to see that the speech in Hebrews is not incidental or random, but instead it's a key feature of Hebrews. And I can say confidently that without these speeches, these quotations of scripture, the argument of Hebrews would be completely undone. And so, with a bit of evidence, I hope, that the author has been intentional in his arrangement of these speeches, I don't think it's absurd to think that the pattern might reflect something about the author's theology, whatever that might be. I think this is a very preliminary taste of the Trinitarian grammar of Hebrews. Only three speak, and they speak in a distinctive way. They each speak in a distinctive way. That's basically my thesis in a nutshell. Now, perhaps the language of grammar gives you horrific flashbacks to grade school. Sorry about that. Nevertheless, we must bear in mind that while our grammar can shift over time and even can be improved, or maybe can get worse, uh, more often our grammar is intuitive or natural. It's relatively static or consistent Especially once we reach adulthood, we're pretty unlikely to go around learning new grammatical concepts, especially in our first language. I've been watching how grammar develops in children, especially with my daughter Isla. Um, she's three, and I've tried to find subtle ways of teaching her proper grammar while acknowledging she's three. So sometimes she'll say something like, um, you know, Mama, you teached me that. And at this stage, she's relatively young, so I don't feel that I necessarily need to say, Isla, that's not the proper past tense of teach. So instead, what I've found myself doing is repeating the words back to her, but correctly. So rather than saying, no, 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 that's not right, I want to encourage her to continue speaking. And so I say, yes, I sure did. I taught you that. What I've noticed is that even though these errors recur, you know, she continues to say, teached, she does begin correcting herself eventually. She'll say, you teach me, and then she'll pause, and she'll start over. You teach me. You taught me that. And eventually, she ceases to make the error at all. Suddenly, one day, her mind defaults to the correct word. What I think this illustrates, as a non-linguist, non-behavioral specialist, is that Grammar reflects habits or patterns. Thus, when we talk about an author's Trinitarian grammar, we're talking about a theological pattern that grounds the present argument. So the big idea is that we can learn about an author's theology from their underlying theological grammar, the patterns, the structures of a text. So 
what kind of deductions could we make from the grammar of the New Testament? And again, not, I don't mean the, you know, um, the order of words or anything like that, but the, the deeper structures. And more specifically, what could we learn about the theology of Hebrews from its spoken quotations of scripture? Perhaps this is rather clear, but just in case, one thing that speech does is to reinforce the idea that the Father is not the Son, who is also not the Spirit. This is, this dialogue is not one person speaking to himself. In fact, one early Christian, Tertullian, has a rather funny bit in one of his writings about how the Father doesn't say something like, I am my own Son, today I've begotten myself. Along similar lines, in Hebrews 2, the Son doesn't say something like, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing my own praise. I will put my trust in myself. I mean, if he did, he would be a model of self-confidence, and I admit he has receipts, but the speech illustrates what the rest of the scripture, because they are speaking to one another, it illustrates what scripture says that or sorry, what, what um, will show us, what scripture will show us, that the persons are in relationship with one another and they work together on our behalf. One example that I consider helpful for illustrating various dynamics related to the Trinity is the quotation of Psalm 102 in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. Here, the author presents what the Father says to the Son. And keep in mind as I read this, this is the Father to the Son. You, from the beginning, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will be destroyed, but you will remain. And all things will wear out like a garment, and like a cloak you will roll them up, and they will be changed like a garment. But you are the same, and your years will not run out. I'll say more about the context of this shortly, but I want to start with what the quotation communicates explicitly. What does this text say about the one that the author has shown us to be the Son of God? He's Lord. He's from the beginning, a beginning far enough back that he is capable of creating the heavens and the earth. Sorry, the heavens and the earth. Make sure I emphasize that sufficiently. He will remain forever. This one who is revealed to us at the very beginning of Hebrews as son. He has always been and he will always be. I personally think that this is a kind of uh, setup for what the author will tell us in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But keep in mind, again, this quotation from Psalm 102 is not merely the author's statement. It's the Father who calls Jesus Lord and who says he is from the beginning. Now, of course, whatever our inspired authors say, we take very seriously. But consider from the perspective of the author of Hebrews what it means for him to portray these as the words of God. I think these words that he attributes to the Father, these are words that he is certain that the Father would say. They're characteristic. So, quotations in Hebrews teach us distinctives about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Generally, 
quotations, especially when portrayed as the speech of God, have been used to demonstrate, as I have, that God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. But some have wondered whether this phenomenon or whether you know, these quotations separate the three persons too much. Through these quotations, we can see three persons, but do we still end up with one God? Does interaction imply separation? But saying that the persons interact in some way shouldn't be a concern for us, as long as we maintain that they're of one will, and we recognize some other things about why this language might be used. I will yield to the theologians to allow them to say what is more proper, but I think interaction is a fair way to describe what is portrayed in scripture. We can say that these interactions are, they're, um, they're figurative language. They depict something related to the missions or processions, which I think we'll hear more about later. And still, when he, but still, when Hebrews says that Jesus offered himself to God through the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14, that strikes me as something that we would call an inter interaction. We just need to understand what that interaction signifies. So I think it is clear that Hebrews presents the three persons united with one another, but many still think that the presentation of speech among the divine persons pulls them apart. And I definitely don't want to leave you with that impression. So, through his use of quotations, I think that the author of Hebrews portrays certain actions as shared among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In one case, he might portray an action as something that the Father might do. And in another case, he would portray it as something that the Son would do. As I mentioned before, at the very beginning when I was talking about being intentional about my language. I think that this is because New Testament authors, like the author of Hebrews, they assumed that when scripture referred to God or the Lord, that it was appropriate for them to identify God more specifically as one of the persons. And though in, we might, um, refer to the work of one person, and in one instance, we could refer to the work of another person in the same kind of action in another place. I'll give you all an example shortly. This is what theologians often will call something like inseparable operations. This is the idea that while one person of the Trinity might be portrayed as the person acting, even consistently, all of the persons are involved. So, for example, while we might think of the Holy Spirit as the one who illuminates scripture or even inspires the original authors, I certainly don't think that we have a conception of the Holy Spirit kind of going rogue and doing this as a lone ranger and the other two are sitting at home, you know, waiting for him to return. I, of course, made this incredibly absurd, but I think the point still stands even without the absurdity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all speak to us through scripture even if we might say that the Spirit traditionally is properly associated with the illumination of Scripture. One example that many will uh, draw on is um, the Father being associated with creating. And we see this in the Nicene Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And it's true that the Creed affirms that through the Son, through the Son, all things are made. 
And yet, this is slightly more kind of secondary idea or description of the Son creating. But Hebrews says more than it was through the Son. If you remember, the Father declares the Son as the maker of heaven and earth. He does not say, I made the heavens and the earth through the Son. Instead, he says to the Son, you are from the beginning, O Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The author's interpretation here does not state that he's involved, or sorry, that only the Son, he doesn't say that the Son is the only one involved in creating. In fact, elsewhere he says the opposite. In Hebrews 4, God is the one who builds all things. In Hebrews 2, it's he's through whom and for whom uh, all things exist, etc., etc. So Hebrews speaks of both the Father and the Son as the primary one who creates, and also a kind of secondary agent of creation. It's almost identical language. So we see some flexibility in the identification of a person, but that's because these actions are shared. Another thing that we see is a shared um, application of titles to the persons. They are, these three, Father, Son, Spirit, are the only ones that are Lord, or um, Adonai, or Yahweh, and God. And I'll leave a kind of summary of Kevin Rowe and Richard Bauckham for a very long time from now. But what I want to reiterate is that through the application of these titles, or sorry, the author um, applies these titles through the content of quotations and through the context of quotations. So within the content, we see something like what we see in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. You're from the beginning, O Lord. That's explicit there. But it's also the case that in some places, it's in the context of the quotation where we see this applied. And I could give some more um, detailed examples, but I think the easy one for us to think about is Psalm 110.1. In Hebrews 1.13, we see the author say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet, or under your feet. And he doesn't quote the first part of that where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, but I do think it's implied. So this is an easy place where we can see that the context of a quotation applies a title to Jesus. All right, I'd be happy to give some additional examples, but I think I'm gonna wrap up. So let's conclude this nerdery. Here's the too long don't read summary of what I've been saying. First, everyone's theology has a grammar and they draw upon it subconsciously. Again, everyone, so this is true for us and it was true for our New Testament authors. The quotations in Hebrews communicate the author's theological grammar, both explicitly in what he says and affirms, and implicitly in how he says it. And this grammar reflects a God who is both three and one. Thank you.